Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Language. In each episode, we talk to an author about a recent book in language or linguistics. And this episode, we have Robert Lane Green talking about his book, You Are What You Speak, Grammar Grouch's Language Laws and the Politics of Identity. I talk with Lane about small and probably quite insignificant things like prepositions and apostrophes, up to weightier topics such as the oppression of minority groups and why George W. Bush's southern accent may have done him a few favours. We touch on people's deepest insecurities about the language they use and how bemoaning the loss of the glory days is a popular sport in language, as it is in many other areas. We talk about Arabic, Catalan, French and Hindi. Lane busts a few language myths for us, which is sometimes sad but probably necessary. I, for one, really wanted it to be true that Maori has 35 words for dung, but it doesn't. He shows how language can be used as a weapon as well as a tool, and expands on his book, which, as it stands, gives a thorough tour through history and politics across time and space. All this is done from the standpoint of languages and the societies that speak them. I learn incredible amounts from this book and from talking to Lane. So, without further delay, let's hear the interview. Okay, welcome to New Books in Language. I'm Kat Davis, and as the name suggests, in each edition we'll be looking at a new book um, in language and linguistics and talking to its author. Today I'll be talking to Robert Lane Green, a journalist for The, for the Economist and correspondent on the magazine's language blog called Johnson. And that blog covers language and its relationship to politics, society and culture. Um, the book we'll be discussing with Lane today is called You Are What You Speak, Grammar Grouches, Language Laws and the Politics of Identity. Uh, the publishers describe the book as a rollicking tour around the world, illustrating with vivid, vivid anecdotes the role language beliefs play in shaping our identities for good and ill, beginning with literal myths from the Tower of Babel to the bloody origins of the word shibboleth. Green shows how language experts went from myth-making to rule-making and from building cohesive communities to building modern nations. So welcome, Robert Lane Green. Thanks very much. Okay, so thanks for being with us today. Um, We'll come back to the book shortly, but first I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Right, well, in writing a book about language and and something that strikes people from the bio and the back flap that I speak quite a few languages, sometimes people assume that I grew up around the world or in a diplomatic or international family, which is about as far from the truth as it could be. I grew up in around the South in the, in the U.S., uh, mostly in Georgia, but I was born in Tennessee, and I lived in Arkansas, and I went to college in New Orleans. And so I, I didn't really – I didn't leave the United States for the first time until I was 20 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in fact, I really grew up in a family of a kind of – I am mixed international in the sense that my father's a southerner from Macon, Georgia, and my mother is a is a – Catholic, uh, Polish, English uh, stock from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so at the other uh, end of the country up north. So (laughs) I sort of jump off at the beginning of the book by explaining how my dad's English, particularly his very southern English, uh, you know, his accent, the vocabulary, the the rhythms that he used and all his style of storytelling and so forth, 
would have found a lot of disfavor from a t- traditional stickler in, in language sense, but how he was also just a brilliant talker, a brilliant um, user of the language. And so for people to say that he doesn't know how to use the language struck me as, as ridiculous. And so I started to think about, you know, my, my southernness or my half-southernness, and, and that was uh, one of the inspirations for, for my own identity, I suppose. Great, great. Okay. So um, being multilingual, I'd, I'd like to take the opportunity to ask the question which we linguists are always fielding. How many languages do you speak? Right. I, 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 I try to answer this with assuming like a range. And you as a linguist know what I mean when I say that. I, I, I say something like six to nine, which is to say at the very least, I'm, I'm comfortable in six. I can conversate very fluently on a variety of topics from, you know, getting to know you chit chat through talking about politics or, or books or literature or things that are important to me. Like I could, I could explain the content of my own book in, in, in those languages. And then the sort of next three or so are ones where I can converse pretty confidently and, and competently on the getting to know you topics. Where am I from? What do I do? What am I interested in? Uh, that kind of stuff. But getting into hard topics, I start running out of vocabulary and, and the higher level constructions that you need to really, to really nail things. So, um, you know, depending on the day, I've had people tell me in Arabic, oh, you speak such great Arabic. Well, I say thank you, but I, Arabic is about my ninth best language. And so um, it's, uh, it, they, would, they would see the limits of my Arabic if we talked for an hour and got into anything really difficult. Uh, sure. So that's, where that, that's, why I give, that's why I give that range. Yeah, I don't always yeah. get to give the full explanation, but, but there it is. That makes sense. Uh, how did you come to collect so many? I really just started spending all the free time I had on one language or another. It's just uh, born out of uh, enjoyment and love for it. I started in, I didn't start till I was 14 in high school Spanish. And one of the worst things about the American school system is that we start language education so late. And at precisely the age when you're moving to a new school, you begin high school, you're wanting to meet a girl or a boy, and you're uh, in front of new classmates. And the last thing in the world you want to do they start making a bunch of funny sounds in front of people. And yeah, that's precisely when we do it. And it's also, according to some of the people who have studied this, although not all, right after the end of a sort of critical language learning period where it gets a lot harder to acquire a language at native level, as you, as you know. And so um, I, I didn't start until that period. But I, I guess I sometimes tell people after telling them this that maybe my, that part of my brain just didn't change. I tell people maybe I have a bit more of a, a childlike brain because I just really have always um, enjoyed it and found picking it up, uh, I guess, easier than, than a lot of other people find it in adulthood. But I don't think that makes me uh, a super genius since any three-year-old or four-year-old uh, can show you that it's really, it, it's not a miracle. In fact, it's something that happens in every, in every human brain pretty much. Sure, so, sure. Started with high school Spanish. I did college German, two years of that, and then spent a university year in Germany. Um, I started French while I was in Germany. Um, I did uh, Portuguese for Spanish speakers at college. Um, I did Russian my, my last year at university, and then I uh, started on uh, Arabic when I moved to New York. I married a Danish wife, and um, I sort of picked up Italian by the by, having done all the other Romance languages. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't too difficult to add Italian to the mix, so sure. I, think that's, I think that's all. Great. Well, if you've, uh, if you've got the extended critical period for language acquisition, then you're a very lucky man. Not sure what it is, but I anyway I enjoy it too. The easiest sure. way to explain it is I really like it. So sitting down with a book and and uh, making myself do it doesn't seem like horrible homework. I actually I really I get a kick out of it. So um, yeah. it's like uh, it's like anything else. People uh, if you if you enjoy something you'll tend to be better at it too. Exactly. Good. Okay. So um, in the introduction there you you filled us in really on how you came to write. You are what you speak from your um from your background. Um, 
I guess we'll start with uh, with chapter one. So as the synopsis touched on, the book opens with the biblical tale of Shibboleth. Um, could you explain that story and how it resonates today? Right. The the story opens with the story of the, the origin of the word Shibboleth, which is a um, you know, again, as a linguist, you'll know it has two sounds in it that are kind of hard in a lot of languages because they don't exist. It's hard for people to say the sh sound and the and the th sound. And uh, so, in the book of Numbers, it tells the story of the Gileadites and the Ephraimites who were at war and uh, to cross the fords of the Jordan. I believe it was the Gileadites um, were uh, asked anybody who would cross to say the word shibboleth, and only uh, a Gileadite could say it properly, shibboleth. And the others would say Sibboleth with an S sound. And uh, if they got it wrong, then you would be uh, killed there on the spot. And so the book of Numbers tells us 42,000 were slain at the fords of Jordan. So um, this is one of those early stories that tell us that forever, pretty much, we have sorted ourselves into groups based on how we speak, how we use language, what language we speak, and even what variety of the language we speak. And so... Um, I tell that story alongside the story of the Tower of Babel to show that even our very earliest myths show how important language is in our conception of ourselves. Everybody knows the story of the Tower of Babel, but I, I just to reiterate, I, I think it's amazing that when God sees mankind potentially threatening to rival his power and rival his authority, he has all these other tools at his disposal. He he uses them against other unfortunates, the Egyptians in the story of the Exodus. He can rain, you know, frogs on you or turn the rivers into blood and kill all the firstborn. But that's not what he does at the story of the Tower of Babel. He, he confounds the languages of the earth. And, of course, this is just a story of origin. It, it tells us how many, uh, how many, uh, many languages came to be in the old Near East. But it also tells us that the, the writers of that story felt like language was just hugely important, so important that if unified by language, uh, you know, man might even be able to rival the power of God. So mm-hmm. I think these myths are, are really, you know, really telling in, in this sense of how, how, much, we, how much we fear and, and, and revere uh, language in our identity. Mm, sure, it certainly strikes into the, the foundation of, of, of all speakers, I think, yeah. Um, okay, so prescriptivism, or appealing to, to rules stating the, the right and proper way to speak, is alive and well, as we know, and um, is it a new phenomenon? No, yeah, not at all. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, one of the mistakes people make is that when you hear people of a sort of prescriptivist bent who are concerned about the state of the language, they often use some kind of temporal phrase that portrays that they think that the language is going to the dogs now as opposed mm. to some other time. You know, that, you know, as kids these days who don't know how to use the words correctly, who don't know the grammar properly, who mispronounce things at every level of analysis, they, they're convinced that uh, the language is just being, uh, was just being ruined by uh, particularly young, the young people, the teenagers and, and so forth. And this complaint goes back as far as I mean, the earliest citation that I use in the book is Cicero, who is complaining that no one in the streets speaks proper Latin anymore. Everyone is mispronouncing and misusing words. And he gets so distraught, he says, I decided finally just to keep that knowledge to myself. He just doesn't see it as even worth it to try to arrest the decline of Latin. And, uh, you know, it's, he's not even the only uh, or earliest example of ancient scolds who were worried about the state of their language. But you can see going back 2,000 years, the fear for Latin tells you that it's been going on for a very long time, even at a sort of golden age of of the of the languages it's commonly uh, considered. So um, there's been sticklers probably for, I imagine every language community in the world has some kind of sticklerism, although I think it's also 
more common, much more common probably among written language uh, right. communities. Uh, but that that's good for us because it means we the, those languages that we have written records of, we can find people worried about the state of the language going as far back as you like. I mean, the great scholar Panini wrote the long grammar of Sanskrit, I think, in about 400 B.C. Um, so we see people worried about the language and enough to write down a long rule book uh, even before Cicero. So it goes back as far as you like to go and in every other part of the world. I mean, the last uh, example I'd mentioned in this context, and we were just talking about religion, is, is Arabic. Uh, the, um, the, the Quran and, and the Hadith of, of Islam were written in a particular form of Arabic uh, at the time of the, the, the rise of Islam in the 600s, the 7th century. And those became so revered that they, the, the classical grammarians of Arabic sort of ossified the grammar, the grammar right then and there and sort of said that real Arabic has to, has to follow this model. But of course, Arabic went on changing just like Latin changed into French. Arabic has changed into so many modern dialects that they can be considered different languages with a classical Arabic at one end and all these modern dialects at the other, almost um, two separate languages or in fact two separate languages. Mm -hmm. And yet this gives uh, a lot of Arabs the feeling that their language has declined, it's fallen to pieces, and the kids have to go to school to learn real Arabic. And it's, it's a sad story really because there's so little pride taken in the vibrant, real living language uh, that's spoken all throughout the Arabic-speaking world, and because they they hold only this this religious literary standard of 1,300, 1,400 years ago, up as the only way Arabic should really be done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. It seems to me like a, a very familiar tendency that. Um, sticklers will look to sort of two sources for um, the halcyon days of the language but back to uh, when these published written grammars were well the written grammars were published or back to their own childhood there seems to be some kind of tendency there you know from from language to language yeah somehow mysteriously the language was at its peak right around when the stickler in question saying this was in was in high school or college and yeah it's funny that before was the early period and everything after that was it was it was declined so sure sure and um, and on, on the same topic there, um, these usage guides and, and books which discuss the, the correct way to communicate, they're, they're often bestsellers. I often spot them in the, the top ten here. Yeah. Um, why do people crave certainty in language? What's the appeal of these um, prescriptions? Yeah, well, I think they crave a couple of things, one of which is certainty. I mean, um, because we're so worried about language, we want to use it properly. We're, we're sure that other people are going to judge us on how we speak and how we write. We don't want to make mistakes, we don't want to mispronounce, and, and we know that climbing up a social ladder um, very often requires mastery of a certain certain form of a, of a given language. I mean, uh, you know that in Britain in particular for a long time, you know, the sort of BBC or Southern, you know, kind of RP English was something that people strove towards, and so they had to minimize uh, regional accents or class accents or other features that kind of were, were, were non-standard. Um, we had a, a slightly different history here in that it's been a big country with more accent, with uh, you know, kind of more distribution, and a lot of people have flaunted their 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 regional accents. But everyone knows that um, you know that you are judged by how you speak. So uh, having a having a sort of canon of rules allows people a certain kind of comfort that they're doing it right. Mm. Uh, but second, I think that it you know it allows for distinction. So it allows you to distinguish yourself from others. Not only do you want to climb up or stay at the top. Um, it allows you to, uh, if you're feeling a little insecure, put others in their place and say, mm. uh, you know, these people don't kind of meet my standards. It allows you to sort of show off a little bit. And, and third, you know, I think that we were talking about the notion a moment ago that, uh, you know, that the language is in decline. Well, 
you know, decline sells across the board, and it's not just about language. Books about uh, is America becoming, uh, you know, Rome and in its decline, or is our economy falling to pieces, or uh, you know, are, are, is, is our cultural knowledge falling apart? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, books telling us that once there was a golden age and, and it's slipping away from us, sell well in all kinds of fields, and it's not just language. So I think that uh, books like, uh, you know, Eat, Shoots, and Leaves from Lynn Truss or some of the others uh, tap into a general phenomenon. I just call it a sort of declinism because for some reason decline sells. You'd think uh, such a, a, a dreary topic wouldn't sell, but it does seem to be a, a perennial. It's also good to see that declinism goes back and back. So we see mm. periods that we see books about the decline of American power in the 1970s and the 1980s and throughout. So all of the anxiety we have right now in, in my country um, is, is part of a recurring phenomenon and not something um, we need to think just appeared sort of five years ago. Sure, sure. So it's, there's three interconnected reasons then. So a, a certain insecurity about, am I using this language correctly? Um, then there's distinction between us and them. And then the, the appeal of decline, or I don't know, just the general um, love of having a good old moan, perhaps. Yeah, I think that just about that just about gets it. I mean, there's sure. a lot of sub reasons in there as well, but um, those are kind of the those are the kind of ones I look at. Yeah. Okay. So, looking the thesis of the book is that the superiority of one way of using language over another is really about nationalist and identity politics rather than the language per se. Um, so, what is it? What do complaints about sentences, which, for example, end with the preposition, have to do with nationalism? Right. Well, you have to uh, build a couple of uh, steps between uh, one and the other to uh, to get the connection, and it's uh, really kind of at the heart of the book. And what I hoped to, was that was the new idea of the book. The uh, the real the the history of it is actually really illustrative in this context. And so what I do is tell the story of a couple of the ri- the rise of a couple of the great European languages, uh, ones that we know well and associate with uh, sort of languages and nations, uh, in language and nationalism these days. And so, just to tell it in the in the form of one country, I, I go on quite a bit about France. What a lot of people don't realize is that as recently as about 200 years ago, only uh, an early survey of uh, French languages found that only about a quarter of the people of the territory of France could speak French, and only about 5% of them did speak French as their first and native language. Everyone else in the country spoke either another one of the many Romance languages native there. We're talking about Catalan and Occitan and... Uh, and things like Picar, and then they spoke non-Romance languages as well. So uh, dialect of German in the in the east, uh, Flemish in the northeast, uh, Basque in the southwest, Breton, uh, Gaelic language and the Celtic language in the west. And so um, France wasn't nearly associated with uh, French then as it is today. So what happened? Well, what happened was the building of the modern state and nation of France and making them sort of coextensive by extending this one dialect, Francien, the dialect of the Ile-de-France, to the whole territory of France via a very conscious process of nation-building. Um, first, the dialect of the capital region becomes the most prestigious and sort of the, the de facto official language because that's what records are kept in. And then as governments and bureaucracies and the state and the military and schools and all of those things grow out of you know the growth of a modern economy, you start to extend the language out. And so it goes from being just a kind of arbitrarily jo- chosen uh, way to re- keep records to the, the language that everyone in the country is supposed to speak normatively. And you get the growth of the idea that if you speak a regional language or a regional dialect, that that's actually wrong, that you need to 
you need to speak the way that people in the capital do. The language of one region suddenly becomes the normative language for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we get standard rules. And along that pathway, along a branch of that, is this the growth of publishing, the writing of books and the mass publishing of books that happened roughly at the same time as the growth of the first great European states and roughly in the last four or 500 years. And when there is, as we've already sort of established, a, a concern about language, people are identified by their language. And then there's an economic uh, incentive. Uh, people want to uh, speak the language properly and well. And for book writers, there is an incentive to want to sell books. Then it's no surprise that we get people, entrepreneurial grammar book writers, saying, well, I am going to write a book that's going to tell everyone in the country, all of those confused souls, how to use their language correctly. And so we get those first grammar books. We get people sitting down and writing how the language should be used. And oftentimes this means choosing arbitrarily from uh, many different options in a language. Uh, and you mentioned an ending, ending a sentence with a preposition. Well, um, in English, at the time this rule was first written down, you could say um, the man uh, I was talking with or the man with whom I was talking both options existed. One was a little more formal and was based on the grammar of Latin, and, and the other is a little more informal and is perfectly native and natural in English. And the way you can see that is some of English's Germanic cousins like Danish do the, do the exact same thing, ending a sentence in a preposition. And, but there was, a, in this case of English, in the sentence-ending preposition, we had the great grammar book writer Robert Loth, who was the Bishop of, of London and nearly became Archbishop of Canterbury. And he wrote one of the first great, uh, really the first great runaway success grammars in which he said that really the elegant one that was strongly to be preferred was the uh, not ending the sentence in a preposition, so the man with whom I was talking. He admitted that people naturally do it the other way as well, but basically condemned that as, as, as only fit for informal use. And from there on, once that rule was out of the gate and Loth's book sold so many copies, that it was bought up eagerly by people who wanted to speak properly, who wanted to write properly, who wanted to impress, who wanted to, you know, rise in society. And so it went from being a strong uh, encouragement to an iron-bound rule. And fast forward about 200 years, and so many people are just taught as a simple prescription by an English teacher, don't end a sentence with a preposition. Mm -hmm. And that's how English should work. So it's a bit of a long story. It requires a bit of unpacking, because on one hand, we're talking about economics, and the other hand, we're talking about politics and the rise of a state. And then we're talking about the publishing industry. We're talking about personal incentives. We're talking about psychological incentives to, uh, for people to want to impress and, and, and be socially acceptable. And uh, you have to put a lot of those building blocks in place. But I try to, I try to sketch out that full story. Uh, and I hope, that's, uh, I hope that answers your question. Sure, sure. I was, I was, no, I was um, coming, at, coming at it from, from each end of the book, really. So uh, it's a really nice bridge. And um, one of the things I really liked about the book was the breadth of examples that you use. So you appeal to Greek. Arabic, English, Norwegian, Hebrew, Mandarin, and so many more to illustrate your points. And one of the recurring points is that each of these languages is a variety or has varieties which are seen as inferior. Um, so for users of these so-called inferior varieties, what are the consequences of being told that the language that they speak naturally is degraded? It, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and, and it differs a bit from place to place. Um, like I said, in the case of American English, we have uh, regional and class and racial varieties across the country. 
and in some cases, flaunting a regional uh, non-standard English can actually get you to the White House. Just take mm-hmm. uh, George Bush, for example, who's, uh, who uh, you know, who was a bit of a stumble bum with the language. He also had a pretty strong Southern Texas accent, and uh, mm-hmm. he started to make it into uh, into a virtue. He would he would make jokes about his not knowing the grammar perfectly, but he had this just folks kind of approach that people quite liked and and, and allowed. Um, they gave him a pass on it because they felt like um, it was authentic, and he was you know especially popular in the South where that was a, a common language, and it's an important political region in this country. Uh, but to give you a nice counterexample, uh, a black English shares, as it so happens, shares a lot of features with Southern English because um, blacks uh, were originally slaves on Southern plantations, and so were alongside, and they often were uh, worked alongside lower-class whites, even indentured servants, and then their overseers, of course, were white as well. So um, from uh, words like ain't to um, double negatives, I ain't got no, to... Uh, various other pronunciations, you can see features that are common to Southern and Black English all up and down um, the, the scale from phonology to, to syntax. But they, uh, a Black English has a s- features that are not in standard white English in the South and um, are stigmatized. So if you hear someone uh, speaking in English that's clearly a Black English, whether full-on, uh, all the grammar features and so forth, um, or even just a, a fairly heavy African-American sounding accent, um, that's just stigmatized. People are told uh, that if they want to rise in the world, they have to minimize and, and, and hide and, or, or pretend they don't have as many of those features as possible. It's said, uh, said to be uneducated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we have two dialects that are actually quite related to each other. But one can be, uh, you know, and has been a, a prominent source of pride for Southern whites. And the other has traditionally been, uh, been looked down on. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's a case of American English. But uh, to take a totally different example, you mentioned uh, Arabic in the, in the list, and I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of people are, t- nobody, since nobody in the modern Arab world speaks uh, classical or sort of written standard Arabic as their first language, almost everyone is told and taught that the real variety of their language is the language that nobody speaks. Mm. And this could be very weird for someone, you know, going to school and being told, no, this, now we're going to learn Arabic. And, you know, a bright, a bright six-year-old might say, but I thought I already spoke Arabic. Sure. Um, and might realize that we're talking about two very different uh, varieties here, I mean, even two different languages. Um, but the one that they speak, the one that they feel natural in, the one they would play in and joke in and feel comfortable in and flirt in, is uh, degraded as not really a real language. And they're going to learn this real language in which they're taught the classical religion, in which case they're taught, in which they're taught, you know, formal texts. And so I think it has been, it's been described to me as leading to a kind of an alienation from written culture for a lot of people because if nothing in the written culture really truly reflects the spoken and, 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 and living culture, then people just say, well, writing's just not for me. It gives people a, mm. a sense of distance from the written word, from, from anything that's kind of transmitted through writing. Yeah. Um, I don't want to overmake that case, and there are places like Egypt where people probably do try to write things in Egyptian dialectal Arabic, but uh, the, the, the point remains that in most of the Arab world, the dialects are frowned on, considered not real Arabic, and so, um, you know, there's just this big gulf between written and spoken. And, and the last point I would make in that, in that context is that, you know, when sticklers say we want to, you know, preserve the, preserve the language, I, I give them the example of Arabic and say this is what preservation looks like. Arabic as a written language has been very successfully preserved from about the 7th century on. And meanwhile, absolutely everyone's speech has changed for 1,300 years, as you would expect. <laughs> and now the written and spoken have become two separate languages. If you really... If you really want to preserve something carefully enough, you're going to get, inevitably, I think, a split between written and spoken. 
and and people are going to feel kind of distant and cold towards that written language. I think. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a dangerous way to go. I think. Yeah, um, your your story there about Bush. I think we had the parallel situation here in the UK with. Um, I remember Tony Blair around the election time. Um, you know, his speech was peppered with glottal stops, and and you know, it was it was a real attempt, I think, on his part to be seen as the everyman and garner the support of the working classes and all of this. And ex- simultaneously, you've got children being told, "No, don't drop your T's." You know, if you want to, if you're having an interview, or if you're, you're speaking properly, then you've got to pronounce these things. So right. it's it, it's exactly the same situation, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I know he got a lot of uh, he got a lot of criticism for that, but I I think so many people, and probably he's one of them. And politicians are naturally in this group. Um, they're natural pleasers, and so mm-hmm. you know, as people do, they'll assimilate to uh, the the features of the person they're speaking with. And yeah. um, I think everybody does it to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, politicians probably do it more than most, and most people assume it's sort of cynical, conscious calculation on their part. But I think it's quite often just it's just straightforward uh, psychological desire to please um, mm. that makes it pretty unconscious. I mean, Barack Obama sounds more black in front of a black church on Martin Luther King Day. Then he yeah. state of the union uh, address to the whole country very clearly. So I think. sure, sure. So I guess one um, consequence of this sort of d- double system is is uh, very adept code switching behaviour between the local variety and the standard variety, and and we see that really nicely in the um, the YouTube clip of the black news reporter that right. you talk about in the book. Um, I don't know if you can just um, describe that example and, and why you're so interested in that one. Right. Well. Um, uh, I, it's uh, if you want to find it on on the web, I think just Google YouTube or Ghetto Reporter, or you can look it up Ghetto Reporter on uh, YouTube itself. Uh, but you have a, a black uh, reporter, TV reporter, walking towards the camera while he's telling the story of a mysterious death at a at a local high school. And I think he's uh, in um, he's in the South somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure where he is. But he's very standard, very formal in his English, and he says, "What really happened that Thursday afternoon that led to Chris Woods's death?" And then a insect flies into his mouth, and he doubles over and spins around, uh, shocked and angry, and, and and freaked out about what's happened. And all of a sudden, he just lets out this tirade, and absolutely every feature of his language changes. The pitch goes up, uh, accent becomes 100% African American, very foul mouth, and and and, and he is, as a linguist, you can see uh, you know aspects of the syntax and stuff that this is a this is a native speaker of Black African American English. Mm-hmm. Who has, by the by, in the course of his education and his and his career and his training, learned perfect standard professional broadcast English. So when uh, people commented on this on YouTube, they say, "Ha ha, the real here comes the real, you know, guy inside <laughs> the ghetto comes out and all this stuff." When they when they commented on it, and I think there was a more than a little hint of racism in a lot of these mm-hmm. comments. But my response to that is just the opposite. This guy speaks two dialects perfectly fluently. He's a perfectly good, uh, you know, user of broadcast standard English, and he grew up with a totally different dialect, which says to me, uh, he's bi-dialectal. He's comfortable going back and forth. And if you uh, click around uh, after looking at Ghetto Reporter, you can find other takes of the same reporter doing it in other circumstances. And uh, rather than it being a surprise or something, you can hear him horsing around uh, when, when the camera switched off with his colleagues and such. And so you see he has command over it when he needs to as well. And so I just think it's great. I think the variety, I think the change, I think the, the room for options and the room for maneuver is what, what I think is so fascinating about language. And variety is just, it's just, it's just beautiful and so much fun and so funny and so just endlessly you know, interesting to learn about. And so um, when I look at language and I love all this variety, then I guess I, that's when I get my back up a bit against people who would stigmatize all but one variety. I, mm-hmm. I, just, I have, a, I have a, just an, an emotional and intellectual response against that kind of thinking. 
Okay, so chapter five of the book is called Welcome to X, Now Speak Xish. And I, I found this chapter incredibly informative. Um, you discussed the rise of the nation states through um, the linguistic lens. And that brings both sides to life for me. So you covered Spain, France and England, Italy and Germany. And then outside of Europe, Israel, South Africa um, and the Balkan nation states. Um, each of these examples is compelling in their own right and as I said hugely informative um, I particularly thought the section on India and Hindustani was compelling um, since you use it as an example of um, the opposite of linguistic nationalism so where you've got this sense of common history geography and, and personality um, which give this linguistically hugely diverse nation a sense of unity um, could you explain how this played out historically and, and what the linguistic map looks like there today sure well I as most people know, I think India and Pakistan both and the whole subcontinent are hugely multilingual in the country of India itself, uh, the most among them, just uh, hundreds of languages. Um, it's often hard to, you know, to draw the boundary between dialect and language, as you know, but um, in it, by any count, it's hugely multilingual. But there is a, a continuum of Indo-European languages across the north of India, the biggest one being what, we, what they then called in the, in the colonial period Hindustani. And which is uh, basically the, the 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 language that we all call Hindu Hindi in India and Urdu in, in parts of India and in Pakistan today. And of course, Hindi, Hindi is written with the Devanagari script and then uh, Urdu with the Arabic script. Uh, Hindi has more words from Sanskrit and Urdu has more from uh, Arabic and from Persian. But they're basically the same language at the at the street level, at the demotic level. Where if two people were talking about the cricket or or haggling over the price of something in the market, they would basically have almost no trouble whatsoever. Uh, very rarely trouble understanding each other. Um, it's only at the written level and at the higher level, if you were discussing religion or politics or philosophy, that the, the vocabulary starts to diverge in Hindi in order to become um, quite different. Um, but at the time, in the pre-independence period, uh, the, the founders, uh, the, the independence leaders, and then later the, the founders of modern India were, were quite convinced that this would not be a problem. The Hindustani was essentially a single language and that the script differences were superficial and could be overcome. And that Hindustani would also unite not only uh, Muslims and, uh, and Hindus in India, but also the rest of the country, so North and South India included. Well, um, both of those turned out to be wrong. First of all, religion in this case did trump language. So I try not to say that language is the most important factor in every political situation, because as we all know, the, the, the religious division, Hindu-Muslim, became uh, the force that divided India from Pakistan. We had partition and all of the the bloodshed and the, the exchange of populations that that entailed, and the creation of Pakistan as a, as a Muslim state. Well, in the wake of that, at least, the founders of what then became India decided that, at the very least, Hindustani or Hindi would, would unite India itself, and expected that English would kind of be a pan-regional language only during a, I believe it was 15-year transition period. Mm -hmm. Well, that also turned out to be a bad prediction. And the reason for that is that Hindi, in India is also divided between North and South, where you have all these Indo-European languages, uh, Hindi, Marathi, Gujarati, and the others, related to one another, north of a line, and then south of that, you have all of these Dravidian languages that are totally unrelated, uh, Kannada and, and Tamil and these others, um, that have a very distinct identity, that have very strong partisans who uh, had no interest at all in being Hindiized. They didn't want to accept that their languages would sort of wither away and that Hindi would be the language of all India. And in fact, Almost as soon as independence came, they started fighting for independent states within India that would be based on their linguistic lines. So the creation of Tamil Nadu and Telugu and some uh, Telugu-speaking states and the others um, was, a, was a, a big issue for 
uh, early uh, regional politicians who knew that their constituents really didn't want to be Hindiized. They wanted to they wanted to keep their languages, and so we had the creation of states by and large on linguistic lines. And so the uh, the plan to sort of phase English out has never come to fruition. In the, English still plays a, a huge role in India, and of course business and politics and education, particularly higher education, uh, media, and, and every other thing. So the language that unites India to a, to a large extent is not Hindi, it's, it's English. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, Hindi is divided between, uh, along that Hindi-Urdu line, uh, it is divided by a national border, and um, and India itself has uh, just this myriad of languages in two main families. So, in that case, it wasn't the you know simple linguistic determinism where where the state lines, uh, uh, you know, the, the national lines uh, coalesce perfectly alongside language lines. This was a, a, a counterexample, if you like, in the book. Sure, sure, okay. And turning to English as a first rather than a second language, um, towards the end of the book, um, you talk about an interesting paradox where um, languages such as French and English. Um, which are um, quite often seen as the most dominant languages, appear to be the most insecure about keeping other languages out. Um, how do you account for that? Right. Well, you know, I think that both the French and the English, and I actually put uh, English and, and French together in a chapter in the book, sort of slightly provocatively, intentionally, because I think that English and French in particular are similar to each other in ways that neither is with any other language in the world. And the, the main commonality there is that both have had a sort of pretense to being a universal language in, re, in, in recent memory. Mm-hmm. Um, as recent as about 100 years ago, uh, the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War was the first treaty in sort of modern European history uh, where the, uh, the English version of the treaty was considered official in international uh, standard, in international setting, so that it was co-official with the French version of the treaty. But before that, French was the bar none clear favorite of diplomats in Europe. It was the, it was the language that, uh, that, that could rightly be considered the sort of the, the lingua franca of Europe. All educated people learned it. Um, they were familiar with the French classics. Uh, every, uh, you know, courtiers from the people around the, the Prussian court of Frederick the Great to uh, the, Tsar, the Tsars in Russia um, used French frequently to sort of flaunt their, uh, their status and so forth. So French had this role not so long ago. And the French still have in their DNA and in their in their in their uh, mentality the idea that French should be universal, should be global, should be everywhere, should have everyone in the world should share in this wonderful language that they've that they've been so generous to to give the world. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, of course, we have the right the rise of first the British Empire and then the American superpower, which spread English so far and wide. And I think that uh, English was just fortunate to be a product of good luck, in that uh, you know in that it was its rise corresponded with the rise of all these communication technologies, printing, and then computers and radio and tele- uh, telephones and all of these things that we're so familiar with and now the internet. Um, so we have two languages sort of competing to be universal and whenever they're threatened in any way, I think both the French and the, and the, uh, the speakers of English have taken to a kind of a, a miffed and, and, and sort of surprised hurt that, um, that people seem to ever want to speak anything but those languages which are so mm-hmm. obviously useful and so obviously beautiful and, and so obviously meant to, uh, to dominate the globe. So the French, uh, you know, decline is, is a little advanced in the sense that it doesn't have that official status it used to. But um, I tell the French to take a take a bit of a chill pill and, and relax because uh, French is hugely successful. It's spoken by native speakers on every continent. It has it has official status on on virtually every continent. Uh, we have French territories in the Asia Pacific region. We have uh, French Guyana in South America. We have Quebec in North America. We have several countries in Europe, of course. 
we have uh, countries with very strong links to French, uh, from Morocco to Lebanon to Syria to Vietnam. So you know, there uh, French is very, very healthy. I mean, very healthy in a world in a world uh, ecology of languages. Um, and then, of course, English is the world's dominant language. So I, I, I'm surprised, but I try to tell both of the, both uh, you know English speakers and French speakers to take a breather and, and consider the the great success of both of those languages. Sure, and I'm suspecting that you don't put that rude health of French down to anything to do with the Academy Française, right? No, I think probably the opposite. <laughs> um, you know, uh, giving uh, I mean the Academy Française and and any academy can kind of lend a certain sheen of legitimacy and stability to a language, and they can probably help it. Uh, you know, slow down change somewhat because providing a sort of official prestige model can probably slow natural language change to a certain extent. But I think they've gotten it too slow. I think they've been too conservative um, to the extent that you know, modern spoken French sounds very and sounds very looks very unlike the French on the page. If you record, you know, phonetically a person speaking on the street and then compare that to a passage of written standard French, you'll find that every level from 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 pronunciation to Morphology to syntax, um, you know, shows this huge, uh, huge uh, discrepancy. So French has moved on, like every other language does. And if I were the academy, I think I'd be, I'd be trying to catch up a little bit. Sure. Okay. Um, so in the final chapter, you explore the relationship between multilingualism and um, GDP in specific countries. So. I found this really fascinating and, and obviously quite complex relationship where, with a few notable exceptions, no highly multilingual country is, is rich. Um, and worryingly, this extends to expected lifespan. So what is it about linguistic fragmentation which correlates with shorter expected lifespan? Right. Well, I, I think the, the shorter expected lifespan can probably be extrapolated from general lower uh, you know, levels of wealth and GDP and so forth. And, um, whether um, multilingual countries fail to develop or rich countries develop and then standardize and, and coalesce around one language is a little bit hard to pull apart. I think it's a bit of both. Um, countries where there are many, many languages and there's no dominant one, there's no group uh, with a single language big enough to, to predominate, often really have trouble uh, developing because there's a, there's a lot of competition uh, for sources since language does define us into groups and tribes. Um, heavily multilingual countries often have a hard time uh, with groups getting together in a sort of positive sum uh, political cooperation where everybody can be involved in government, everybody can share uh, a growing economy and so forth. Rather, you, you tend to get zero-sum type games where um, one tribe uh, speaking one language will run the country and try to keep as much of the spoils for itself uh, from others and it, and it prohibits cooperation and, and development of networks of the kind. They can really tie a country together and help it get rich at the same time. Um, so I think that's at the at the root of a lot of the failures of countries like in Africa to to grow because they're very very multilingual countries. Um, there's really no um, no no big country in Africa is dominated by a single language unless it's a, a European language like French or English. And so um, it does make it I think difficult for a country to develop. Um, I guess I, I should be precise in saying that no multilingual country is rich. It's not exactly that no country with a bunch of languages. Fails or, can, or can succeed in getting rich, but it's no country with a single big language that predominates. You know, you kind of need one big one. Mm -hmm. So our measure here is what is the biggest language and how many speakers in the country speak that language. And if it sort of gets past 50 into the 60, 70 percent, then you know you have the predominant language that can kind of really tie the country together. 
Right. And if you don't get up to that level, if the biggest language is only spoken by a quarter of the people, then you have a really fragmented society and it, and it becomes really difficult. Sure, sure. Okay. So the, the final message I got from the book is that languages differ, varieties differ, and, and this is great, not in a in a, hey, let's celebrate diversity kind of way, but for what it tells us about the adaptability of human behavior, that is that language use is contextually determined and that people know how to do it, they're adaptable. Um, the question that comes from that really is, do you think as well as foreign language education, children should be taught appropriacy in communication to encourage this kind of sensitivity to context and using um, the most appropriate variety in those contexts? Do they need that? Absolutely. I, I think that I think that kids are smart enough to, uh, I mean, from a pretty young age, are smart enough to understand the truth of language, which is that, hey, um, you may or may not speak the standard variety of your language, but you're going to need to if you want to succeed in the, in the economy. But that being said, you, can, um, you need to learn it, you need to command it, but you don't need to use it every single second of every single day because kids in particular are very good and very adaptable with language, as you talked about earlier. And, you know, as in the case of our ghetto reporter and, uh, you know, all the way through to, you know, highly multilingual people, um, adults can handle it too. They know that, um, you know, one variety of language is acceptable for home and, and, and for the street and the marketplace and so forth. And another might be the one for work and for formal speeches and education and so forth. So giving, you know, I, this is the whole point of, of my book. I really wanted to give people exactly this idea. I wanted to, to lay bare what we're doing when we talk about language and then give the kids these meta-level tools to think about their language and to understand that, yes, you do need to command, in, in the case of English, you do need formal standard English. You do need to be able to write with formal grammar and usage. But that doesn't mean that that's all you ever need to use in every single circumstance. Um, kids are able to handle that lesson, and, and I think that they would grow up as more confident and healthy and happy adults if the language that they grew up with wasn't stigmatized as debased or as ignorant or something like that, but rather they just taught it's one variety of the language. Keep it, treasure it, love it as a mark of the solidarity that you have with your group, whether that's you're a Cajun French speaker or a black English speaker or a Scots English speaker or an Egyptian Arabic speaker. Uh, give them that sense of solidarity and belonging to a community and also give them the benefits of their standard languages, English, French, Arabic, or whatever it be. Sure, sure. Okay. So, um, Lane, it's been great chatting with you today and hearing more about You Are What You Speak. Uh, before we go, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're working on now. Any new projects in the pipeline? I am not currently writing another book, but I have a couple of um, a couple of ideas, I guess. And some of the themes that come up today, the ones that really kind of obsess me and get me get me excited. Um, I guess one of them is I thought about bringing the analysis of, of that I used on language um, to look at at the American identity uh, and and extend the analysis beyond language to look at religion and race and uh, and and immigration and, and and other issues involved in our sense of who we are as Americans. Because um, I think that there, through the history of America, there's been a, a, a competition between two sort of kinds of Americanness, and one is the very traditional European nation-state kind of view, which is that America is a nation like, just like the French are a nation. Uh, we are a certain people. We have a single language. We have a main religion. We have a sort of semi-official history, um, and we, we're we're a nation in that in that sense, sort of strictly defined. Um, and so that would be uh, typically white, European-descended, Protestant. English speaking, um, and so forth. And that other groups who are, don't fit all those categories are sort of here on, on sufferance. They can kind of be Americans, but 
everybody knows what a real American is and a real American looks like that. That's conception of America A, the sort of nation-state America. And then the other, the competing version of it is sort of America as, as an idea, as a civic nation. America is its ideals, that, that America is a, is a set of principles laid out in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and in our understanding of those documents as, as our history has gone by, um, which involves expanding a circle of Americanness, first to you know, all males who could vote, all white males who could vote, and then to, uh, all, uh, to black Americans as citizens and voters, and then to women, and then to immigrants. And, uh, you know, just recently extending marriage to, uh, you know, gays in New York State. Mm. So we see, you know, we see a, a process of circles expanding, rights increasing. And, and this is the idea of, uh, of America as, as a collection of ideas that is gradually reaching more and more people. And I think those are two competing visions. I think that they, they share some things in common. I mean, you could talk about the role of Protestant religion in the, in the American idea and things like that. But by and large, I think they're in competition. And I think a good historical look at that dynamic is, is a kind of ambitious book that I have thought about attempting, but I haven't gotten past much conceptualizing. So um, that's, that's, my, that's my big fancy long idea that I might spend 10 years on. Uh, my other, at the, at the short version, and you can tell me if you know of a book and then I won't, I won't be able to write it, but I thought about just trying to explain lingu- language and linguistics a little bit through jokes. I thought about collecting some of my favorite jokes and explaining how they work linguistically. And you can explain uh, everything from uh, phonetics to, to pragmatics. Um, sure. Through through jokes, and so um, I, I I thought that would be a good fun short book that I'd like to I'd like to pull off. So um, it'll be one or the other, or something totally different. I'm not, I'm not yeah. Thinking. Well, the first idea sounds like a fascinating and huge project. Um, the second topic, I know quite a few people working on humor actually in linguistics, um, and um, I don't know of any titles off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are uh, many many sources out there. I think the downside of that is the the danger of um, you know, doing the um, sort of vivisection of jokes and, and then they, they lose all life and appeal. But um, certainly phonetics, pragmatics, I think can be really useful tools in, in working out, you know, what why something is funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the first line of the book would have to be, this book is going to do exactly what you shouldn't do, which is explain a joke, but, yeah. uh, but, but then go on to do it anyway. Sure. With that, with that in mind. Fantastic. Good luck. Okay, Lane, thanks so much for being with us today. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Robert Lane Green, author of You Are What You Speak, Grammar Grouches, Language Laws and the Politics of Identity. I'm Kat Davis, host of New Books and Language. Thanks for listening.